0: Friends and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. A little different one for you today. Um, We're not going to go deep on sport. We're going to get into higher education as a sort of institution and as an institution that is failing miserably uh, and that is beset with sort of exploitation and harm on all sides. um, Much much differently than the sort of popular attitude or outlook, which is this this notion that uh, higher education is beset by the scourge of cancel culture. Um, In fact, the reality is that um, higher education is being run as a business uh, and as such, driven by capitalist imperatives that are destroying the experiences of students uh, who are left with crushing debt. Um, It's destroying the experiences of the teachers at universities, most of whom don't have job security or a livable wage, creating a really dystopian hellscape that we are delighted to share with you today. Um, My name is Nathan coleman Lamb, and I am joined today by Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hi. Uh, we aren't joined by Derek because unfortunately, Derek doesn't have the courage to delve into um, <laughs> issues of higher education and governance. Uh, so, he, no, no, that, of course, that's not true. Uh, poor Derek desperately wanted to be with us today and, and couldn't attend. Um, but Derek is the most spoke, outspoken among us, really, um, mm-hmm. both mm-hmm. Uh, in his own institution and publicly about these issues. So, uh, we are absolutely in solidarity with Derek about all issues related to higher education. So I'm going to throw it to the interview in just a second. But uh, as we always do, we invite you to follow the show on Twitter at endofsportpod. Uh, we'd love it if you subscribe to the show on any podcast uh, service. If you would consider um, supporting our show via Patreon, that would be so very much appreciated. Um, and please leave us a review, rate the show on Apple and other uh, sites if you wouldn't mind to help other people find the show. Thanks, everyone.
1: Ashish Kapoor Sadiq is an assistant professor of history at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. He is a historian of early America, early modern Europe, and the British Empire whose research and pedagogy explores the role of collecting, managing, and using knowledge to the history of state formation and governance. He has articles published in numerous scholarly journals and is working on a manuscript entitled Rule Through Paper, Archive and Language in the Governance of the British Empire. He has also written a really blistering analysis in Teen Vogue about higher ed institutions capitalist culture of governance, which, we'll, which we will definitely be talking about today. And I have to say, if, if listeners are looking for someone who is, is, is on board with making very bold and really necessary critiques of higher ed, please follow him on Twitter. And we'll include his Twitter handle in the show notes. Um, Ashish, we are really, really excited to speak with you today. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much, um, uh, it's an honor to be here. I love the podcast and you you guys do such important uh, work in, in talking about issues of higher education um, and it's just an honor to be here.
1: So we'll just dive into it. Um, now in, in the different strains of your work, you analyze how power, whether it be governmental, cultural and or economic is concentrated and the tools that people use to assert their power and policies. So let's start first by diving into some of your scholarship. And in particular, we'd love to hear about your article, which is titled, Governance Through Documents, The Board of Trade, Its Archive, and the Imperial Constitution of the 18th Century British Atlantic World. One of the primary arguments in your piece is how the British Imperial State in the 16 to 1700s relied upon, and I'm quoting you now, quote, written documents as tools for enforcing norms of bureaucratic performance in spite of no single codified text upon which its legitimacy rested. Through the mundane technology of paper, the constitutional edifice of empire was enacted and sustained across vast oceanic distances. Now, can you walk us through this piece in terms of what you are analyzing, what is the significance of honing in on the mundane technology of paper and the archive as tools of the British empire?
2: Yeah, um, you know, I I came to this. This was a this was kind of one of the first articles that I wrote um, out of my dissertation, which was a, a history of paperwork um, in the in the early modern British Empire. But it it actually started um, kind of out of what I thought I was going to write my dissertation about. I was trained um, as a historian of the early modern British Empire and a historian of early America and I have uh long been very interested in kind of really to to put it quite practically kind of how how things work a kind of a very um just like a really I I've been fascinated by kind of big vast systems like you know like governments and corporations uh that seem to Work so seamlessly, though often, as we all know from our own experience, um, often don't work. Uh, And Mm -hmm. it it was as somebody who was trained as, um, you know, as an early modernist, uh, I was really interested in how um, these sorts of these sorts of systems worked when, you know, there was no internet, there were no computers, there was nothing, um, there there were no there were none of the kind of technologies that we use to organize. Um, uh, systems of information. And so I actually, this article probably took like, really being more than probably eight years to write in the sense that the, the origin kind of came out of what I thought I was going to write my dissertation about, which was um, questionnaires in the early modern British empire. I had discovered um, uh, when I was initially doing some um, sort of kind of some pre dissertation research, um, that all kinds of institutions um, in sort of early modern Europe were using something that that we are kind of very familiar with in which we encounter all the time, you know, questionnaires, um, things like that just ask you a bunch of questions in order to to, to, to gain data. Um, and I, as I kind of had been doing my initial uh, training as an early modernist and, and was sort of reading for, for my qualifying exams and doing um, a field on history of knowledge and the history of information. I became really fascinated by these documents and I was kind of not initially um, going to just write about government, but I, the first archives that I went to um, were bureaucratic ones and I kind of just stayed there. Um, and in this piece, I is builds out of kind of a discovery that I made there, which were of these um, questionnaires that the that, um, uh British imperial officials were sending to governors in um, and other imperial officials in um, the American colonies during the 17th and 18th centuries to try to, um, it it would seem, gain information that they didn't have in the metropole. But as I mm-hmm. Found the more that I was looking into them, a lot of what they were actually trying to do was to try to uh, kind of remind people of um, of what their of what their political responsibilities were, um, and so uh, in part uh, what I uh, find interesting about the the project and about the piece um, is that when we look kind of at these kind of very mundane sorts of technologies, we see, um, I think, first of all, that a lot of our um, assumptions about how, uh, uh, um, about what it kind of means to have a modern form of political knowledge are, mm-hmm. um, are perhaps, uh, 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 you know, perhaps need some interrogation in the sense that, you know, today we we always seem to be looking for kind of better ways to produce more accurate forms of political knowledge, whether that's through statistics or some other form of data collection. And the truth is that in the early modern period, people were actually thinking about um, political knowledge in exactly the same way. They were trying to find mm-hmm. other kinds of technologies to do that. And in some sense, our quest is not um, is not a new one, and and perhaps mm-hmm. the technologies that or and, and modes of knowing that we see today as being um, authoritative will come to be critiqued in the same way that we may look back on you know early modernists sending you know handwritten questionnaires and be like, gosh, how could you think anything that was going to come out of that was going to be good data. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no. And, you know, as I was reading your piece and then as I'm listening, you uh, provide the answer, which I I think that your point that sort of these um, forms of gaining knowledge, but also asserting power and governance, right, that they're not new and that they're ongoing. And I mean, even in my research, when I look at um, how the International Olympic Committee tried to sort of had tried to communicate and enforce policies in the eastern Bloc during the cold war and and, and everywhere it's not just the eastern Bloc, but w- worldwide is so that they had to do it through correspondence right and they don't actually have kind of people on the ground to implement policies and to ensure that their policies are being enacted and in fact their people on the ground are the people that the ioc uh, like sort of nominated and eventually later on elected to represent the International Olympic Committee to these countries. And, and, and they don't want these people to be government figures for the national governments that they're working with. But of course, like you know, the separation of kind of culture and politics is, is never what we want it to be. Um, so I just found that really interesting sort of how compromising and how difficult it is. And, and obviously, that this is the Cold War, right? This is not the, the, the context you're talking about. So I just found that really interesting.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think that it points to, I mean, whether we're talking about like an early modern state or a, or a modern body like the IOC or even, you know, the modern university, I mean, I think one of our experiences of bureaucracy, and I think that maybe this is sort of the unconscious of uh, the article, my article, and the unconscious of maybe a lot of my research is that there's always this, we, we, we are, we, you know, bureaucracy sort of that um, they they say to us, you know, here are some rules, and if everybody just followed them, you know, things would work seamlessly. And yet, one of our experiences is that actually, even when we follow the rules uh, in bureaucratic systems, they actually don't work seamlessly, or or they may work they may work to actually enforce, um, you know, kinds of hierarchies and forms of power that that are actually quite um, you know, uh, noxious and coercive. And so, you know, maybe I think that that partly my own perhaps um, experience of various kinds of bureaucratic systems, including, you know, maybe the university is maybe the sort of unconscious of of the piece. Um, and I, I think it's something that as as people who, you know, are part of one of the, the, the great bureaucracies of both the early modern and the modern universities, I think that there's a lot... Um, there's a lot um, for us as, um, you know, as people who who work in universities and think and think about universities a lot um, to sort of consider.
1: Absolutely, and actually, that is the best possible segue to the next question, which is sort of, you know, like I mean, you started to talk about it. but I'd love to hear about it more. Is that given that your expertise is in the early modern period? Sort of, how did you come about your critiques to um, to and about higher ed?
2: yeah um so i um so in some ways i think a lot of that came out of my own um experience of uh of sort of being involved in um union organizing when i was a graduate student at columbia university um between uh 2009 and, and 2016 um Sort of throughout the time that I'd been there, there'd been a lot of talk about um, the possibility of um, of graduate student, a uh, uh, graduate worker organizing um, uh, in at Columbia and at, at at within private higher ed institutions. Which um, this was, you know, this was still the Obama administration, and um, eventually the the Obama NLRB. Um, had had uh, made it possible for um, for for graduates graduate workers at private universities to organize. And um, sort of over the course really of many years of graduate of of being at Columbia and talking to a lot of my colleagues and and friends and other grad students about how we might be able to, um, to, to to organize and unionize um, in in order to improve the conditions of, of uh, graduate workers at Columbia um, I kind of became more and more fascinated with the university as a bureaucratic system and how um, you know and, and in some sense how my own kind of like undergraduate the kind of like, like the undergrad, um, love and romanticization of universities that I think a lot of us have, and, and, and that motivates a lot of us to go to graduate school and like want to become academics and professors, um, is, you know, is sort of, I, I wouldn't say shattered, but at least, I mean, maybe it is shattered for some people, but at least qualified and conditioned when we I think experience the university as, as workers, which is effectively what we do as graduate students. Um, and then, you know, as, as, as employees. And I think that it was kind of at that interface of kind of the, the student experience of loving knowledge, you know, and loving the classroom and the kind of the graduate, the, the kind of the graduate student <laughs> disillusionment um, of the universities mm-hmm. and the interest in bureaucratic systems that I kind of began to sort of in the context of participating in, in unionization at Colombia, really you know try to begin to understand what 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 higher ed actually was um, you know as the system, which kind of led into um, you know thinking you know realizing that that a lot of the um, a lot of the a, a lot of the kind of the sense of differentiation that I think academics have from say like the for-profit corporate world is is perhaps more um, uh, it, it needs to be more qualified um, and and is perhaps more illusory than we would think.
0: You know, I had I had no idea actually that you were so involved in, in graduate worker or organizing. Uh, I, as you were talking, I was sort of thinking it was it's uncanny. In 2008, 2009, um, I was on strike at York University in Toronto Ooh, uh, yes. as a member of uh, QP3903. And I mean, there's, just, there's a lot of kind of ways we can jump off of those sorts of connections. But just beginning with what you were describing, I, it does seem to me, based on my experience, based on your experience, based on what I've seen elsewhere in the academy, that probably the single most progressive force in higher education today is graduate worker organizing absolutely Um, yeah because i mean graduate workers are i mean you know actually to backtrack from what i was going to say there's a way in which what graduate organizing does is from the beginning it allows us to kind of shock that very problematic identity that so many academics have but they're not actually workers, right? Yes. But and by the way, there's so much analogy to sports here, right? Yes. This way in which these are privileged occupations. These are things like where sport is play and, and academia is learning or yes. like, or, you know, the, the life of the mind, things that are not supposed to be so quotidian, right? They're passionate. Right. They're not quotidian like work. And so right. people actually in that context, resist the identity, right? They don't even want to say, I belong in a union with other working people because it's like, I do something different than they do, right? Yes. It's just not the right fit for me. And so there's like a, a seduct they feel a seduction towards the paternalism of the academy. Yes. I saw that here coming from York. And right. I, I do want to get into more of these dynamics, but coming from York, a public university in Toronto, and, and by the way, in the same city as the University of Toronto, University of Toronto fancying itself to be right. an Ivy of the North, right? right? And York, not claiming to be that, like a, a very radicalized faculty, yes. especially with a different kind of identity. And so like, for us, it was sort of like, a, you know, it was like the water we would drink, the, the, the right. mili- labor militancy and radicalism. Um, and then I came to Duke and i love my colleagues my specific colleagues we are yes. we are non-tenure track um, right in the program i work in um and we are unionized by the way which right. is another thing we can get at yes. uh but it was fascinating to me because so many of my colleagues ending up even in a non-tenure track position, a postdoc esque position at the time, at a place like Duke, that means that so many are coming from Ivy type environments, right? right? That's their pathway. And like the discomfort that they felt with the antagonisms that came with the recent unionization that had just occurred. Yeah. It was like it it just felt wrong to them. Like they almost like a, a toxic and inhospitable work environment. Yes. And I was looking at them like, what are you talking about? These are our bosses. Yes. Of course we're having a conflict. That's
2: what we do here. <laughs> (laughs) absolutely yeah it's the hardest and it is honestly and i feel like this maybe gets to the core of why um you know i mean this is something that we all i think talk about so much on twitter which is like well why is it so hard for um especially academics But really i'm talking really specifically tenured academics to like express basic solidarity with graduate workers who are organizing around, you know, around this country? Um, and why is it just like so hard to get, um, to get academics to see themselves as workers, especially those who've kind of been in the system for a long time, and maybe didn't have the experience of, um, you know, of of organizing as graduate students. And I, I really think that there that it gets to exactly what um, you, you, you say, which is that, you know, we, we think of the university as something exceptional to, you know, the, the, the political economy of capitalism, even though it's just, it's shot through with it, you know, and that is, and and it shapes everything about how the university runs. I mean, once you really realize that it is a business, um, a lot of things make sense. And yet we are we, we are always kind of having to combat that sense that you know what we do is not work. It's this um you know it's this high it's this thing that is sort of exceptional to um to the economy when actually it's it's right and, and it's embedded in it. And and even those of us who there's so many people in the academy who sort of like know how to uh, think structurally, but like when it comes to thinking about their own working conditions, it's like, oh, you know, it's like, uh, we need to look in the mirror a little
0: bit. Yes. Yeah. No, no, no question about that. And I I mean, the other lesson I learned about during that kind of York experience, um, which I think I don't see it all in the U.S. context. Like, basically what's happening is I feel like the labor politics that were happening in Canada in the 2000s. Yes. That's why I, I came to the States a decade, kind of sort of like a decade later, the same exact thing was playing out yes. down here that was playing out in Canada. But in Canada, the universities had been long unionized. Faculty are unionized. Yes. Contingent faculty are unionized. Graduate workers are unionized. Everyone's unionized. Yes. Um, and so what that also meant, by the way, and there's a, there's a lot of strands to this, but like that the the union-busting industrial complex yes. <laughs> in canadian universities is something that i think most americans would not believe like oh we know that like proskauer rose whoever gets hired in the u.s yeah. and, like we know what happened um at yale for instance right. um you know gabe winon has spoken out of his experiences as an organizer at yale and the, yes. being put on the stand and the absolutely right. wild stuff that happened there but like at york It's not even that they have the big law firm, for instance. It's like they have a huge fleet of administrators whose job Mm. is like full-time union busting, right? It's like the the lawyers are all on staff at the university. The money that could be going to pay the workers is actually going to pay the bureaucracy that crushes the workers. Exactly. So like you go on a three-month strike at York so that you don't get a concessionary deal in your collective agreement. You don't win things. That's That's just so that they don't... Whereas at Duke, when we had our first collective agreement, It was unbelievable. It was like we got a couple of, like a representative of the administration, um, a lawyer from the university, and like the out, you know, the, the, um, so like an in house lawyer, and then uh, a lawyer from the, you know, union busting firm. Yes. And that was it. That was like, that was, that was who you were negotiating with. It was like, what is this small potatoes operation? This is an $8 billion endowment university. Can't you like spring for more union busting? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But like, what sprang out of that in Canada? which was amazing to me, and I haven't seen it here, and and I'm sure that you'd be excited by this too. Our union at York was not just graduate workers. It was graduate workers in the same union as contingent faculty, or what we called contract faculty in Canada. And we did not have the same collective agreement. So we had what we called at that time, three units. Um, yes. And one of the units was the, you know, the graduate workers. Another unit was the contingent faculty. And then we actually had a third unit, which were research assistants, which was a technical distinction. So they were like students, basically, but right. not with full TA ships. Fine. It doesn't really right. matter. But what would happen is this is what we did. We determined as a union, and it was before me, like this is a longstanding tradition of that very militant union, QP 3903. The tradition of that union was... We will all negotiate together on the same bargaining team together. Right. You vote on the contract separately because you have to by law. Yes. But like we have we have general meetings together. Everything is together. So it's like the strategy. Like, of course, the university would try to divide the units. but yes. Our whole strategy was to act in solidarity. And what could we do? We had 50% plus of the teachers at the university. Every time our union went on strike, the university shut down right that's yeah. power right that's real power exactly. and like, like yes. here at duke our contingent faculty union we're just a fraction of the the educators at the university we couldn't shut duke down if we wanted to right, Which right. Is, and, and that's the same with graduate only unions yeah don't have that power so it's difficult
2: it's difficult yeah exactly and i mean it's i mean i, I it's, it's it's like it's it's almost hard to imagine like I, I mean i i say and it's 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 you know it's kind of like infuriate it's like. The, there's a way in which the um, the university, certainly like I, the American university, is just run in this sort of like customer service model. That mm-hmm. you know, it's like if when when people are on strike, it's like the the ins, the ins like people who you would think would know better mobilize to kind of like, you know, undo the inconvenience that's caused rather than think of things as a moment to kind of buy in and come together, you know, for, for, you know, for solidarity across different kind of um, positions. I mean, I, I remember, I mean, at Columbia you know there was just like people you know a lot of professors were like you know what if if when people go on strike i'm just gonna if tas go on strike i'll I'll just do the sections myself and it's like no you know like you should you you need to say like you you are a worker you know you're a worker even if you are some tenured big name chair of this that or the other and you're you know you' you you are part of this collectivity um, and you know you need to show solidarity with um, with your colleagues and that um, I think in part because so many you know people who've really been in the academy for a long time and, and I think especially um, who maybe came of age in the academy sort of in the era of you know you know neoliberalism um, have found find it very you know have find have found it very hard to um i think see themselves that way and it's a it's a big problem
1: yeah and and I just wanted to chime in because I, I i think So I'm listening to your experiences about working in the grad unions and at University of Florida, we had like a pretty long standing graduate union that I didn't like. I mean, I paid my dues as soon as I could and did all the way through, but I didn't really pay attention to much of what they were doing literally until they would fight for us. And they would. And like they I don't remember them winning us like major gains, but it was still like the university is trying to drastically cut our health insurance. And the union ensured that they would continue to give us the like one teeth cleaning a year, you know, that, that we should have had, which which <laughs> maybe wasn't maybe wasn't like a raise, but was still huge, you know, it was still huge. And, and so I remember like when I realized on Twitter that like other schools didn't have unions, I, I couldn't believe it. And it's and it's and I don't know, it seems to me like it, it's maybe a little bit more rarer for there to be graduate student unions at, at at IVs or private schools, and I could be wrong. Um, but, but just kind of seeing people talk about like, oh, we, we created a union here. And I'm like, you didn't have one before. And then the other thing is that like we had at UF, we had a bunch of faculty who came from, like I came from Ivy and, and kind of settled at UF. They, a lot of them were not pleased to be at UF, but it was a job or whatever. Um, and some of them had experience at like Berkeley in the sixties and they were pretty, you know, pretty much, much older than the rest of us. And they would they would kind of, you know, talk about their experiences in the 60s and 70s and how much they fought. And then when it came to like graduate students, like kind of talking about the challenges of being a graduate student, sometimes the response would be like, oh, well, it's better than what I had it, which was just like so crushing. And and like, and it wasn't the like respect of like, right, we fought hard and you should fight hard too, because it should be better than what it is for you. And I don't know if it's like a defeatism of being in higher ed for so long or the precarity of academia or whatever, but I just remember feeling that felt really off, but I couldn't quite pinpoint it until I really got involved in Twitter and kind of understood more of the conversations.
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think that there has been... You know, I mean, I think that, and I, you know, I, I, this certainly probably started well. This certainly started well before my time, but um, I mean, I remember. It it, it has long felt to me that, um, you know, I think that maybe it's the competitiveness of the job market, um, and and I think actually that has a lot to do with it. That has kind of made people. Really, see themselves as—I um, I mean, in some sense—as sort of like um, free agents and um, and individual actors um, in a in a competitive um, sphere where you know, if 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 I win, if I get a position, you know, if if I don't get this and somebody else gets that, that means I'm a I'm a I'm a loser and they're a winner, and so. You know, actually, academia is about you know competition and jockeying for positions and and power and 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 I think in some ways that is in some sense like what the 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 the, the kind of the financial executives who in effect run academia want it to be. You know, they want it to be this sort of um, competitive, individualistic atmosphere, and I think that in part because our like our total edifice for thinking about like funding and advancement and like, you know, in within the academy is based on like individual competition and scarcity, it, it becomes very hard to to see, to kind of step out of that as a as an academic. And I think especially um, you know, when you've been in it for a long time and and realize that, you know, yeah, this is the system now. It is not a good system, but we could build a better one if we only realized what was going on. That, you know, it's mm-hmm. not like if I get this grant or if I get this job, um, that means I'm a winner and you're a loser. It's like, no, we should all have good paying jobs. There should be enough money so that people who want to do research and produce knowledge can do that. Um, and You know, it's, it's a, it's, I think, I mean, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to sometimes get, especially, I think, tenured people to, to see that.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And again, a great segue to our next question, which is, we've been kind of dancing around this, this really amazing piece that you read. And as soon as we read it and our DMs were like, oh my gosh, we have to talk to him, we have to get him on because it just, it was so, it was so good. Um, and in this, and, and I have to say, again, please, please follow him, please follow Ashish on Twitter, because the, the critiques are, are necessary, and they are regular, and we need to, we need to kind of keep talking about these things. Um, and we've talked a bit how most tenure academics, who, again, are, are the most secure people in a profession, how they really are loathed to levy any kind of explicit public critiques of academia and higher ed. And really, you know, we have these huge, these and um, in, the, in the history field, we have these names of people that have tens of thousands of followers, you know, and they're known for sort of like taking down like bad faith, you know, inaccurate um, kind of right-wing critiques, but, but are again, are low to critique higher ed. Um, and in this May 2021 piece for Teen Vogue, which was titled um, Campus, Campus cancel culture freakouts obscure the power of university boards. And in it, you show how American university boards, um, controlled by the aptly phrased corporate capitalist regime, have essentially created the crisis in higher education. And for example, as you lay out, Harvard Harvard is run by a truly disgustingly named, quote, board of overseers. How that racist name continues to exist, I have no idea. You can click on You can Google it, and it will pop up. And it is comprised of people with six MBAs and only four PhDs with people from Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley and McKinsey and Company, Google and the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, which is just all of it's gross. And even Oberlin College and it's it's an an ostensibly hugely left leaning and quote unquote progressive school. They also include numerous board members who are banker and investor types. So, can you explain this to us? And what is even going on here?
2: Yeah. So, this really came out of something that when I first realized it, it really was like I'm, I'm like I, you know, I started grad school. I, I finished my undergrad in 2009. I, I started grad school effectively in in in, sorry, in 2007. I effectively started grad school in 2009, and I really have never done anything else. So, you know, over you know nearly like over a decade i just had never really paid attention and and this is perhaps the the you know my own sort of reflection of, of how academia and our culture of uh, often makes it very different difficult to think structurally about our own institutions i had never even though i'd been like trained to think about you know like government and institutions and how they're run I never really looked at who was on the boards of universities Mm -hmm. and I just was as kind of, I I was beginning to do that because I, I was sort of, I, I kind of increasingly was realizing how much, especially once I kind of started, um, uh, uh, working at UMass, um, how much, um, uh, sort of, administrators and 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 ultimately the boards that they are that they are accountable to really structure in usually in very constraining ways the the conditions of possibility about what you can do and what you can't do and I've been struck you know since I started teaching at UMass about how much even departments are just like are really concerned about money and funding and metrics and things like well we just need to get as many people into the classroom. And and I, I wanted to figure out why. And so, um, you know, as somebody who has, who, who you know, has been thinking a lot about institutions and how they're run in the context of my research, I, I just started looking at who was actually on the boards of trustees at um, universities. And of course, you know, universities, um, as Corporations uh, are, are um, you know, have trustees who exercise a great deal, who, who may not, um, in some sense, um, be involved in any of the day-to-day governance of, you know, um, uh, of the university, but who exercise an enormous amount of power over who is appointed to um, those key positions of administration that then set up the policies that we all have to um, uh live under including policies about things like hiring um uh, 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 the conditions of contingent um, workers the conditions of graduate workers and i was shocked to find that actually the the these universities the the boards were really just essentially hedge fund managers and corporate lawyers people who um are have been trained to to simply think of, institutions as, you know, for-profit businesses that are accountable only to um, to their shareholders and is really just as money-making machines. And once I realized that and, and, and put two and two together, I was like, okay, this really explains why so much of what is just like noxious and terrible about the current, you know, financialized regime of the university. It's like, People who are like, you know, like senior executive vice presidents at like Amazon and Google are, you know, are treating um, are treating the university and, and its workers just like they, uh, you know, want to treat uh, people or, or treat people who work at Amazon, you know, as um, just you know, people whose 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 uh, who, whose labor they can extract the most value from while paying them in uh, uh, the least and and giving them the least benefits. And I was like, you know what? Here is this textbook. I had this moment where I was like, yes, exactly. This we can't we can't understand the modern university and and all of the issues with it unless we start from the um, realization that it is a for-profit business, you know, and to, 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 and I think that when we look at who runs it, that's exactly, you know, that's exactly what we find.
0: Well, you know, that may seem self-evident to you. Um, but I have to say that your piece, unfortunately, um, did, engender a rebuttal from the media relations director at the University of Oklahoma. Um, So I'm gonna let folks, I'm gonna be even handed here and let folks hear from the University of Oklahoma who wrote by way of rebuttal, quote, among this group, the OU Board of Regents also includes a former university president. Each member of the Board of Regents has a proven track record on how to lead a successful business. This expertise is an integral part to governing proceedings and conducting business for a university with a more than $2 billion operating budget. So if I might just paraphrase there, in other words, how dare you say this university is run like a business when in fact what it is, is a business and one that is run as such. Um, so, I mean, clearly what's, what's kind of so absurd about this is clearly we all agree at this point that universities are businesses. So the question that comes from that, and this is what you've been getting at, but just to to sort of tease it out even more, and then I have another question because you you talked about hedge funds, and I want to come back around to that too, but um, like, okay, universities are businesses why is that a problem, right? That's, I think, what people really need to grapple with because for so many, it's like, yeah, go get an MBA and then you'll learn how to run things effectively because that's the whole problem with neoliberalism, isn't it? It's like we are running everything like a business. And if you, if you drink the Kool-Aid, so to speak, right, then what you're really saying is, good, now we can run things efficiently, right? Because businesses maximize value and that's what we're trying to do in any organization. So what could be better than running anything like a business?
2: Yes. And I think that this, the, the my answer as is, is that we we cannot um, that to reduce the um, the the processes and the and the and the experiences of teaching and learning to simply a market transaction is to essentially eliminate all the. All the kind of um, uh, radical and, and democratic possibilities that are inherent in that, um, in those acts. Um, that is to say, that the entire premise, in some sense, of what we do as both teachers and researchers is to say, you know, let's, you know, let's imagine a better world. Let's let's think about the past. Let's think about the present in order to imagine a better world. But if you think of um, if, if you, if you, if you think of the university as a business, all that, all that means, imagine a better world is let's just make more money. Um, and that to me is like, that is, that, that's not just, um, a radically, I think reactionary vision. It's also to me, a deeply undemocratic one, you know, I mean, because, you know, to, to think of a university in a democracy is to think about, you know, what it would mean to um, to to build up the common good of all, and and to think about um, a university simply as um, uh, a a business is to is to quite literally say no, this isn't about the common good of all; it's about the particular um, financial gain of shareholders. You know, of the people who are just part of the of the, the narrow body of the corporation and and not others, and that's just not what um, higher education, especially in a democratic society, should be about. It's about um, the common good, and so I think that that the, this discrepancy between what higher education is um, or should be um, and what and how it is governed really. Is is just this colossal problem, and I think that we, as academics, it's it's imperative and really urgent right now that we, you know, step up and articulate that.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and you know, and you were that was a very um, eloquent and tactful response. Um, and in part, <laughs> my follow-up is like, capitalism is bloody dehumanizing. And if you run anything like a business, what you are doing is you're just extracting value from people and then discarding their bodies on the side of the road. Like that is the point of capitalism. And that is what is happening to adjunct faculty everywhere. That is happening to graduate workers who are being, who are, right? Like they're being squeezed of all this value because those TA ships are dirt cheap. It's labor that's needed by the university. And is there a job waiting for them at the end of the day? Well, just an adjunct position that's even worse paid than the TA ship. Some of the numbers you hear, right? I mean, I don't have them in front of me, but like when I first arrived, and i was told what adjuncts were paid at some very prestigious i was heard i'm not going to name the university. i'm going to be slightly tactful myself but at an exceptionally prestigious private university in the south not named duke university um no but I'm not, a joke. actually duke duke has the best pay for adjuncts pretty much anywhere in the south and we're unionized so so i'm, I'm not making fun of duke here but like at another institution that consider itself to be a competitor right a direct analog or competitor to duke they were paying something like people need to hear this if you're not in the university Twenty five hundred dollars a course. You can't live off of that. This is a private university I'm talking about, an extremely well-endowed private university I'm talking about. So I mean, like it's just it's it's unfathomable that this is what and then students are paying seventy thousand dollars of tuition, et cetera. And then this is the that's how much of it gets to the people who are doing the actual labor of providing them with an education. But there's another piece I want to get at. You mentioned universities as hedge funds. Astra Taylor in 2016 has this wonderful piece in the Nation um, that people should check out. You're probably familiar with it. I want to actually read the title because the title is um, also worth reading. It's "Universities Are Becoming Billion-Dollar Hedge Funds with Schools Attached," which is a perfect turn of phrase. And she writes in that piece, though the exact figure is hard to determine. Experts I consulted estimate that over 100 billion. This is in 2016. It's probably gone up. Over 100 billion dollars worth of educational endowment money nationwide is invested in hedge funds, costing them, get this, this is wild, costing them approximately $2.5 billion in fees in 2015 alone. And then she says the problems with hedge funds managing college endowments are manifold, going well beyond the exorbitant, some would say extortionate fees they charge for their services. I mean, if you think about that, two hundred two point five billion dollars has been raised off of just investments because universities exist, right? It's just because because Harvard or any of these institutions have someone in a classroom that they're paying less than a living wage to, they're allowed to have a hedge fund, <laughs> and hedge fund owners can make this kind of money. It's just it's sickening
2: and and, you know, and and exactly. I mean, you know, and the fact that, you know, I mean, it, it, people you know people will, will 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 some of some of your listeners will will perhaps um, also see in the piece um, that you know one of the points that's made is that if you just think about what the hedge fund managers for university endowments are making, they're making like ten like five million, ten million dollars a year while, you know, the the people who are actually doing the teaching and research that ostensibly like students come to the university for and which the university actually like gets all its cultural capital and prestige from are making like barely, barely minimum wage. If that, I mean, can, like this is like people talk about Amazon as as an evil corporation because of how much Jeff Bezos makes versus what. You know, somebody who actually works in an Amazon um, shipping center makes. Th- I mean, this is just as terrible a discrepancy.
0: You're right. You know, that's Nick Saban money. These exactly. uh, <laughs> these hedge fund <laughs> managers are making. That's wild, actually, <laughs> just, when you really think about it.
2: You know, I mean, it's not just like it's the. I mean, it, and and as you know, as as both of you have um, pointed out in, in your work on um, you know on sports, I mean, it it is this thing where. You know, it's the hedge fund managers and the football coaches who make just these absolutely astronomical um, sums of of salary while the people who do the actual teaching and research um, barely make enough to live on. Um, in many cases, quite literally do not make enough to live on, which is why they are are taking multiple jobs while... Um, you know, while teaching full course loads at universities um and and going into debt and um, and and really suffering while doing the the precisely the labor that the universities should be about, which is which is teaching and um, and and
1: absolutely. And, you know, just to add to the the support piece that you added here is that I, I mean, A lot of people claim that university athletic departments, their finances are separate from the universities, which that's a bit murky. It's like to some extent they are, but then in a lot of ways they are not. And I also wanted to highlight that this piece that came out last week. Uh, with Sportico titled and we'll put this in the show notes titled College Sports Injected with Millions in Federal COVID Funds and it talks about how all of these schools used in some case in some cases like millions of cares COVID funding to inject into their athletic departments and some of them did that to um to sort of make up for the revenue uh that they lost during COVID but then others like LSU let me pull this up there's like a really handy graph um LSU Put over $4 million of CARES money towards athletics. And almost all of it went towards testing because, of course, they continued to play sports during the pandemic, you know? So, I, okay, I guess at least they were, like, trying to keep athletes safe, which, like, that's great. Although, of course, it's debatable how much they were testing athletes versus everybody else. Um, but then, like, George, Georgia Southern put 6 million eight, sorry, $6.8 million of CARES money towards towards um athletics and this is Georgia Southern right that's that's not that's not a power 5 as far as I, as far as i know Um, And, you know, it it just it just goes to it's just one example of many about how, you know, if if we're looking at the people who are performing all of the labor and their labor is being exploited and how they are not getting, you know, they're they're not getting adequately paid at all if they're getting paid at all. And then, of course, there's the whole name image name image likeness, which, which we've talked about in a lot of our episodes that we're recording this week about how nil just allows universities to continue to not pay athletes to continue to be exploited right so like you know it's just all all hurtling towards like these are just corporations So we are not even hurtling towards we are these are corporations absolutely um, which is just yeah Mm -hmm. you
2: know and and i i think that that is um you know the, the especially i think that when you look at the I mean, in some ways, I think this is another example, like the, the, the way that universities have used COVID relief funds, and especially in relation to the athletic room, is, you know, yet another example in some sense, I think of how, to go back to some of the things we were talking about earlier, how the pandemic has really, I think, brought into relief for a lot of people just how much injustice there is in what is ostensibly, you know, in the university, what is ostensibly sold to us as, um, you know, a democratic space and, you know, and, and sort of like a, a bedrock of democratic society, which which it should be. But at this point, in some ways, it, it is actually a place where a colossal amount of inequality and, um, you know, and structural oppression is being produced, you know, whether that is in the in the treatment of contingent and adjunct faculty, the the anti union sort of the 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 anti union and anti organizing wars that that um, that administrators are waging against um, against uh, graduate workers, contingent faculty, or you know the 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 really abuse of um, uh, COVID relief funds, taxpayer dollars um, that universities have engaged in. I mean, I think it really. Um, points to, uh, you know, and of course the, the rush back to, um, to in-person, uh, classes without any kind of adequate, um, health and safety guidelines that so many universities are going, are, are, um, are under. I mean, in many ways, the pandemic, I think has become a moment where a lot of what is, has often been hard to see, I mean, perhaps at least for the public, um, um, it has really kind of become very very apparent and clear
0: yeah yeah no question um and i mean so Part of this, we're laying out right all these challenges, and we were talking about the union piece earlier, which is maybe a little bit of a giveaway in terms of what, what direction we might need to go. Circling back around to remedy, but before we do that, um, there's actually a really important part of your piece, the Teen Vogue piece, uh, and that Derek highlighted. I want to give Derek credit for this. Derek really wanted to be here for this conversation and couldn't at the last minute. So, but this is his question. So I, I want to give him full props for it um, because he's thinking a lot about faculty governance and working hard on the inside, right, to do something about it and be very outspoken. So I. Love admiration for his work there. Um, so he says, in that piece, you highlighted how faculty once had meaningful power within higher educational institutions by pointing to the example of the AAUP. In 1915, faculty at American universities organized themselves into the American Association of University Professors, which is what the AAUP stands for, which championed academic freedom and significant faculty participation in the administration of appointments, peer reviews, and curriculum a principle that came to be known as shared governance. Though, as you point out, it was resisted by administrators and boards of trustees for much of the early 20th century. The so-called shared governance model was cemented within the modern university in the post-World War II era. But from the mid-1970s on, as the historian Larry Gerber writes, this idea of shared governance was supplanted as the dominant model of university administration as boards of trustees, provosts, and deans took advantage of neoliberal austerity measures and public funding cuts to higher education and asserted increasing control over the hiring of the professoriate. So while we could talk about how the neoliberalization of higher ed has completely co-opted any notion of collegial governance in our esteemed institutions of higher education, I think the question here is, where does the model of shared governance sit currently? And how do you see collegial governance going forward as we begin to come out of this, or at least... We're moving into a new phase of this pandemic-induced state of so-called exception in higher education.
2: Yes, and I think this is absolutely key question. And I mean, my my fervent hope is that um, we move back to something that looks that that is um, at least as a starting point, perhaps for for more radical possibilities. At least uh, that looks something like um, you know shared governance. I mean, at this point, we don't have. We, we just have um corporate governance, and I think that there is there i mean there's uh, there we could talk for hours about that, but I think there the are two points that I think I would make I think that it is true it is it is very true and this is sort of what I highlight in my piece is that um the the a lot of the the um the way in which that shared governance model declined was sort of the the um you know the the overlap between um, uh, Board of Trustees and administrative desire for power within the university and then you know right wing um, state legislatures and and governors, and then, of course, the the um, you know the era of sort of Reagan federal government cutting funding for higher ed um, that that sort of helped um, uh, 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 cement the kind of this 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 decline of faculty governance. But I think also, and, you know, it is it is partly, I think, a result of, you know, academics kind of not thinking of the, increasingly not thinking of themselves as workers um, and of thinking of themselves as sort of, you know, scholars just sort of locked in the library or in offices and classrooms, just thinking about ideas and sort of leaving the the sort of so-called dirty work of administration up to, um, up to professionals. Um, and I think the, the future really, I think, roots sort of is, is, is hinges on academics re- realizing and, and, and thinking of themselves as workers and, to, and, and imagining the university as a worker-run space not a man, not a kind of a manager run space which is exactly what you know has happened um and I, I mean i really think that if we don't if we don't move in that direction and and again in some sense i think the onus is really on us as um as faculty members as teachers as researchers to to get organized and to assert that um, I, I think that things um, you know will not change because the people who are currently in charge—I mean, to them, the university is is working just fine. They don't—they don't see you know contingent labor as a crisis. They don't see um, graduate worker or organizing as a, as a boon. They don't see um, you know we we didn't have time to mention very much, but they don't see you know the cost of college as a bad thing. They see it as a good thing. It means more money for them, you know, and and so they don't see any problem with the current landscape but you know for those of us who actually work and teach and uh study and 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 um within universities we know that that's not true and it's incumbent on us to get to get organized um into uh and to and to fight back
0: yeah a couple of thoughts on that because one aspect that's just always we were talking about the college sport piece you can only make the argument that there is compensation in college sport based on these exorbitant tuition fees, right? Like in, in Canada, where and I've been coming back to this a lot, but I mean, I paid $6,000 a year of tuition at the University of Toronto, which fancies itself to be Harvard of the North, which, you know, we could debate that question. But I mean, the bottom line is, yeah, it's a good institution. It's, you know, very conservative in a lot of ways. I have my critique, but uh, but at the end of the day, look six thousand dollars compared to seventy thousand dollars right I mean it's not a comparison it's like night and day um, it's frankly six thousand dollars is still too much and we were complaining it was too much at the time because it had been going up right it was like actually a lot higher above inflation than it had been for previous generations but nothing like in this country right where a university went from like an actual accessible good for many Americans to something that is like you know literally can be people can say with a straight face, what do you mean you're not getting compensated in college sports? You're getting a $70,000 a year tuition stipend. You're getting paid the big bucks, <laughs> um, right? And so it's like, it's only in that context is that even coherent, in the context where we're, we're charging our students, you know, such obscene amounts of money. Um, and, and by the way, you know how people don't even realize, this, this is just me going on a tangent, but because I just started back in the classroom. But I tell my students every semester, you know, at this university that I work teach at, they pay, you pay for everything up front, right? Like the university offers all these so-called amenities, but they offered like, you get Microsoft Word when you pay your tuition. So in other words, you have to pay whatever however hundred do- many do- hundred dollars Microsoft Word costs. You just have, for some reason, you get to pay that up front, even though you didn't ask to do it. And then you better go and get the Microsoft Word put on your computer since you've already paid for it. But why is that happening, right? Like, how many different things across the university are rolled into those seventy thousand dollars that you pay for up front, and you don't even know that they exist? You don't even know you bought it. Exactly. Exactly. And 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 be, in part
2: because you know the university wants to think of this as they want you know they want people to think that they are you know this is a this is a space that is um, kind of in some sense not part of. Um, you know, the grubby, quote unquote, real world, um even though it very much is. and and as long as I think students and 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 you know, I think to some extent, uh, well, actually, to a great extent, um, uh, especially tenured faculty, you know continue to believe that that this is a space apart from market relations rather than one that is deeply shaped in every aspect by them you know, where we, we, we have, uh, you know, we, we have a problem.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay. So here's the other thing that before I went on that di- digression about Microsoft Word, um, you really had me thinking when you were talking about shared governance about one of the challenges that like is a bit more abstract for me because of my position, which doesn't really lend itself to shared governance, that there's not really a pathway. But for, for anyone who's on the tenure track, like both of you, um, you know, it, it's a relevant consideration in a different kind of way right now. Um, And that is, I get the unionization piece, right? I get like collective action and bargaining. I get how that leverages power against the university. But from the shared governance standpoint, what is a, a radicalized faculty member to do when confronted with the possibility of, let's say, a position in faculty governance, a position even in administration? Like, is there a way in which given the current neoliberal model and the fact that we have, like, the structure of a business here, can anyone, no matter how radical their politics, affect any kind of sort of even mildly progressive change in the university by assuming some of these positions?
2: Yeah, I mean, that is an excellent question. And I I think that, in some sense, I think that that I think that they can't. And I think that this gets to why this problem is so difficult is that, you know, it's, it's not like replacing the current, you know, like bad administrators with like a radical is going to solve the problem. Because like, as we've seen over and over again, plenty of, you know, so-called radical professors become administrators and then what happens well they they crush unions <laughs> and they um and they end up you know uh uh, uh doing all the kinds of uh, bad things that like you know that that the, the, the trustees and the and the admin tell them i mean i remember um you know uh, certainly when i was um uh, at columbia like you know when when students were were you know graduate workers were fighting for a union and and you know the people in the provost office were you know r- radical progressive historians like nick dirks and john coatsworth and they were you know they were adamantly anti anti worker even though they had mm-hmm. themselves as graduate students been involved in um you know in in union organizing and and much the same thing happened when dirks was the was the chancellor um, you know, at Berkeley, when, when um, graduate workers and, um, and, and undergraduates were, were mobilizing um, uh, against sort of various kinds of austerity cuts and tuition increases. I mean, Dirks was, um, you know, Dirks was on the front lines defending um, all of these terrible policies. I mean, in a sense, it's a matter of structural change, not just getting you know, better people into these positions. And that's, I think, what makes it so difficult.
1: Um, so so to kind of go back to something um in your piece, so we already talked about how University of Oklahoma responded, but they but Oberlin also responded to the piece. Um and but one one thing that I found that was sort of like that you found that was similar in the two responses was that both schools claimed that their boards included people from quote unquote diverse backgrounds. And, and that's when they listed like the credentials and the industry experience um, and, uh, of every person. So how is this yet another perversion of the concept of diversity and inclusion in higher ed? And really just, um, it seems to me like it's another example that quote unquote sort of DEI initiatives are really doomed from the start if they're using the language in this way.
2: Yes, absolutely. And you know, those responses on, certainly from the Oberlin one, um, you know, one of the things that that masks is the fact that, sure, there are a, there is a librarian on on the the board of trustees. But well, how do boards work, right? And and they work by major, you know, they they have votes and they work by majority, you know, majority vote. And so, if the majority of the people who are on the boards are Um, you know, of one view, and that view is, well, let's run this uh, university like, you know, like Amazon, you know, they have, um, they have the, uh, they have the seats, they have the votes. And um, just sticking um, one librarian, um, you know, on the on the board doesn't sort of doesn't solve that problem. And this is, I think, um, you know, an, an example of how in some sense of a very neoliberalized conception of diversity. Well, if we just add, you know, if we just add one uh, librarian to the board, one person from a dissenting perspective, then we've achieved diversity or we've achieved our our, our goal, um, actually can work to undermine um, really radical, the kind of radical structural change that we need. Um, and this has certainly, I think, been, uh, been seen in a lot of DEI initiatives where, um, you know, the, the, the emphasis is often on, well, let's just kind of, um, you know, let's, let's create sort of um, a set of, you know, let's set, create kind of a set of um, uh, perhaps, you know, like performances um, so we don't have to do the real work of structural change.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, and I just want to be clear when I say that like DEI initiatives are doomed to the start, this is not intended to critique necessarily people who work in DEI. Cause I, I do think there are some people who go into that field and like genuinely believe in the ability of their positions and their work to like affect meaningful change, um, but as a lot of people point out, it's just putting on a band-aid, And like you said, with the example of the librarian, I mean, a, it assumes a librarian has some kind of radical politics, which like, I don't know, librarians can still be arbiters of knowledge and gatekeepers. So like, I, I don't know, like hopefully they're more sort of liberationary than that, but I don't know. Um, but, but even like having sort of like, you know, a DEI office or people who work there or like the one librarian that then is sort of con. you know their efforts are kind of like constantly defeated by the neoliberal corporatists corporate uh, i can never say that word the corporation of the university right then it serves to sort of reinforce the idea that it should be run like a business and that our job is to make money right because we keep proving again and again the validity of these opinions because they keep winning out right it's almost like it's it's um Yeah. So I just, yeah, I don't, it's just, it's just really interesting how even, again, there are like really well-meaning people, I think, who, who, who go into this work to do it, but it's just when they're working within a larger structure that not only is corporatist, but also white supremacist, right? Like, it's not like they're really going to be able to be allowed to do much.
2: Right. Exactly. And, you know, it, it, what, you know, we, we need, um, um, diversity equity and inclusion within the academy but a um, a, a, div- a, a diverse faculty of um, of contingent and adjunct workers is is what the, the 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 sort of the neoliberal vision of higher ed diversity um, is moving us toward and, and a radical a more, much more radical vision of diversity would be one in which we do have a um, a, a diverse faculty um, but but it is one where everybody um, is treated with dignity um, and respected um, and, and treated fairly as a worker and I don't I, I am skeptical that, that that is really possible in a within a neoliberal university structure that is just set up to to treat people as um, Simply, essentially, is simply expendable. You know, uh, um, uh, you know, is expendable. Um, um, you know, assets.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's really convincing. Um, n- no question about it. Um, I kind of want to steer us a little bit towards now the um, dystopia that we're living. We we were gesturing towards it earlier, but this dystopia that we're living in higher education right now, thanks to the pandemic. Um, And you, I'm doing it because you have made some uh, really, I think, significant insight. You've passed on some really significant insights about the question of liability in these institutions, which I'd love to ask you about. Um, You've pointed out on Twitter that many states have passed laws that give our higher ed institutions actual immunity from liability claims regarding their handling of COVID. Uh, Can you just lay out for us, what does that mean? What does that look like?
2: Yeah, so I, I, I actually, and and I, I, I look was was very surprised to to learn this, and also very surprised that it hadn't really been um, uh, reported very much. Which is that it seems like over this last kind of year and a half, a number of state legislatures um, passed laws that essentially said um, that if um if if universities um, uh, which you know in, in in many cases were not um, uh, 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 taking uh, either adequate um, uh, steps to provide um, um, to to provide uh, 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 safe working conditions and learning conditions, um, had been granted. Um, immunity from, um, from, from civil liability by state legislators. Um, And this was a story that I was um, uh, really very surprised to learn. But um, in in fact, uh, the um, numerous states, um, including, um, you know, Georgia, Michigan, North Carolina, Ohio, um, uh, have passed uh, uh, laws that protect Um, institutions against um, uh, COVID-19 lawsuits, um, unless you can um, establish that you had, you know, gotten it um, because of some um, wanton or or, or misconduct on the part of the institution. And these apply to universities in many states. And uh, I think that this is, in fact, another example of how, uh, you know, conservative legislatures and um, right-wing governments are working with university leadership and university administrators to protect precisely this corporate capitalist um, money-making anti-worker regime. I mean, the the fact that if, uh, because of uh, a university's um highly dangerous um uh, covid uh policies that do not require masks um and that do not necessarily require um vaccinations but merely encourage them which is what is um what is going on in a number of states um you, you can't sue the university for um uh, uh if it um if you get sick because of precisely these policies from working um and, and learning in the institution is is dangerous and and yet i think again another example of how um right-wing politicians and right-wing higher ed administrators are um really turning the university and and have turned the university in a space that is deeply hostile to um the conditions necessary for uh you know for for learning and teaching and, and and intellectual flourishing
1: so that is all truly horrific. And, and I guess to really understand the impact, you know, how does this, how does this immunity um, from liability claims over the handling of COVID, how does this end up systematically harming faculty, staff, students, and local communities?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, um, it was, it can essentially, in some sense, um, make it, um, very difficult if you, um, if you, uh, um, are, are working in one of these places and you, um, and you get sick, uh, it, it will making, it will make it very difficult for, um, uh, for, for you to bring, um, a claim against the, the university administration, um, uh, for, um, you know, for, 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 for you know, de- destroying your health. Um, and you know, I think that we could think of this. I think that we have to think of this um, as really equivalent to um, you know a, any any employer, Amazon or or or, or you know, um, uh, you know McDonald's or, or really any corporation. Um, you know, creating a, 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 you know quite literally a hazardous work environment. You know where. Just by doing your job, you are exposing yourself to um, to life threatening um, to to life potentially life threatening consequences just for doing your job, um, and that is anti worker and totally unacceptable, um, and it is totally unacceptable in any workplace. And we and the fact that this is being done in universities, and also I think being done with the cooperation of right-wing politicians um, is, is an outrage and something that we need to really be talking about and organizing against. And it, it yeah. seems that it was something that was really been done totally under the radar.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And actually, as you've been speaking, I'm thinking, you know, we also don't want to let the institutions themselves off the hook of it one thing presumably there's like lobbying going on behind the scenes but i mean we have but here's the plain sight evidence last year in the early summer when college athletes came back onto campus for the first time during the early part of the pandemic let's put our minds back in that place no no vaccines no protection right like a tremendously dangerous situation the death count rising and those athletes were asked to sign waivers. And when I say asked, I mean compelled because uh, the question is never a voluntary one. Um, That's what status coercion looks like in college sport. It means that you know that you have to sign whatever is put in front of you. And they were given waivers to say that they were exempting the university of any liability for harm that occurred to them while they were training on campus and what did that translate into into practice we know that at clemson that meant 37 football players um ended up with the virus we know that at unc it was a similar number of players we saw these outbreaks at countless institutions um, because the coaches knew exactly what they were doing in fact some have surmised because based on some of the things that have been said that some of these coaches had a herd immunity mentality which is to say let's subject our players during the summer so when the season rolls around we've gotten past that particular issue um, and I can roll my players out in the field and that happened at LSU almost all the players on the team got it as a consequence and Orgeron was pretty candid about that but anyways I'm saying all this because it almost seems like there's a way in which like those liability waivers which by the way the universities were mostly forced to retract so there was a public outrage as a consequence but it's like it almost seems like a blueprint for what these legislatures were doing
2: and i would only just add that 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 listeners should know and uh, that it was it, it was also a lot of the you know small liberal arts colleges that um that really whose really selling point is that we're not like a big University in that we provide a really, you know, like focused, caring experience on undergraduates. They were doing the same thing. I mean, I I, I was just pulling it up that Bates College um, in, in August 2020 made, you know, had students sign one of these waivers that said, I acknowledge and agree that by committing to attend Bates College as an on-campus residential student, I am voluntarily assuming any and all risks that, notwithstanding the college's best efforts to implement and require compliance with these prevention and mitigation measures, you know. So this, I think, points to the fact that it is where what we're talking about is a is a is a big structural problem of you know right wing um, and and uh, um, uh, 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 governance, and it's. It's endemic from, you know, from big state universities to small liberal arts colleges, um, you know, administrators and and boards are running these universities like, you know, exactly like businesses. And it is um, having a a really sort of destructive impact on, you know, students and, and faculty and staff.
1: So in, in t- to sort of connect this to sports a little bit, and we have been doing it so far, um, but the, the the laws about immunity from liability claims. how might this play out as, as a particular form of harm and exploitation amongst campus athletic workers, do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, my one of my concerns um, is that in part because universities, um in university management sees um you know sees athletics as this like crucial um money making opportunity that even if um you know say for example big athletic uh big college athletic events um you know are are being held without social distancing or really without um mask mandates or vaccine mandates um they They. They may become um, super shredder events. They may. They may be um, uh, uh, really damaging a lot of people's health and lives. But universities will still try to go forward with them um, because they see them as just money making opportunities and are not um, and do not prioritize either the health and safety of. Um, uh, athletic workers, um, uh, student ath- student athletic workers, um, um, staff, uh, the people who work in in college stadiums, and and the local communities, you know, in which in which these colleges and universities are, um, you know, are located.
1: Absolutely. And kind of one thing that I want to say to listeners, so so this week we're, we're recording a lot of episodes to, to, to release over the fall once our semesters are all in full swing, the three of us on the end of sport. And we just uh, recorded some really fantastic episodes um, with... Um, with scholars who look at the ways in which athletes are coerced by the universities um, to, to work for them and work for them without any pay. So um, if it's not totally clear, kind of like why athletes have so little avenue for any kind of agency, they have so little, so few ways to push back because of the interlocking methods by which the NCAA and universities ha- continue to coerce athletes. Um, please listen to those episodes, and we will link them in the show notes just to kind of um, help make sense of some of what we're talking about
0: here. Now, you know, sport is all well and good, but I think what our listeners really want to hear about, and Ashish, you know, what you really want to talk about is your favorite show, The Chair, Um, and how The Chair (laughs) uh, really, I think, provides um, perhaps the best kind of representational pathway and hope. For reform in the academy, <laughs> right. can, you just, can you can you elaborate on uh, how the chair well, will save us?
2: I I, I mean, as as, <laughs> as probably many of your listeners know, uh, Netflix um, has has given uh, you know has 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 given the um, uh, uh, dramedy treatment to academia finally um, in this in a in a show that is really I think, gosh, it must have just premiered like this week um called the chair which you know sort of is a is a dramedy about um uh, about academics and faculty members at a um you know at at a small liberal arts college uh and uh, it's just like you know it's created this like just I- i'm not sure i've ever seen anything uh, that generated as much commentary among academics on Twitter. it's just been amazing and I and mean, to me, I think so I have seen it and I actually I, I thought it was actually quite a um, uh, uh, charming charming show um, but i I've just been very amused both by um, just just sort of like how much academics have have been like enamored um, by the fact that they like, they got the Netflix treatment and also like to the extent that so many have been like debating the extent to which like the chair is realistic and not realistic when, you know, like we, we have a lot of like very real big problems in the Academy. And, And sometimes I feel as though like we just, it's so hard to get people you know, exercised and, like, angry and, um, mobilized around them, like, you know, like graduate worker, um, and continuing faculty organization, and yet when, like, this sort of thing happens, like, a big, you know, like, media frenzy over, um, um, over, over, you know, over a TV show or, or, like, a, a cultural representation, like, nobody... You know, we, get, we have so much attention paid to that, and yet um, so little paid, attention paid to um, the real problems that we have in the academy.
1: Absolutely, and I should just say that I had to have Nathan ask you that question because I told him I couldn't get through it without laughing. I was like, I literally will not get the question out if I ask it. Um, I mean, we already knew your stance on it, Um, and, and 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 I agree. I mean, I understand. I understand the critiques of it, and I understand particularly, like you know, the lack of you know contingent you know workers. Um, to what extent the student body was representative, and of course, um, the the challenge, the real obstacles that the faculty of color in the show face. I mean, I and I understand the critiques of those. I understand why for some people that felt representative, sort of or not. But but I but I, but I think what you're pointing to, which is important, is that people are paying so much attention to a show when there are so many. Things that we are facing some of it related to the dynamics in the show and some of it not when it's like you know would our efforts be more effective if we were to advocate within our universities and kind of against higher ed and that sort of thing um yeah you know and, and again i think the amount of attention that it is generated um I don't know it kind of it, it does make you question you know what are people focused on and maybe what are they missing and of course we don't actually know like if people are not tweeting about something it doesn't mean that they're yeah, not paying course. attention exactly. to it yeah um but yeah it's just it's just and, and i have lots of other uh, thoughts and I've, I've tried to like not chime in too much on twitter because there was so much already and i'm also like you know, I'm a white person, and so I'm very privileged. And all this stuff, and so I, I don't think my voice is like really needed in a lot of ways. Um, but I also just wanted to point out that, like, I couldn't ask it because yeah. I would have a lot of It's, it's,
2: it's interesting. I feel like the, um, you know, a, I mean, academia, right? Is not is like there's representations of academia in the media. It, it, you know, it's like out of you know, it's like the the bumbling sort of like disorganized professor who's sort of out of touch with the world and um you know is is doing kind of like all of this um you know like trying to be an inspiring teacher and do the whole like you know young people you're going to go out and change the world sort of um thing and i mean i think what's what is actually kind of nice is that i mean the, the the show does portray a lot of like the the, the costs and, um, uh, you know, and the, the, the costs and the, and the sometimes actually very unglamorous conditions in which, um, in which academics work, um, and, and, you know, and, and and some of the sacrifice and, and some of the big sacrifices that, um, you know, that they have had to make in order to, um, you know, in order to do um, what they do and, and I think it, it is important for the for the public to um, to to see that um, and to and to think about that. Um, but I, I do think it's important for I, I guess like I I just think it's important for us as academics to to, to 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 like to realize that there that there are you know genuine like very very Live, visceral, visceral problems in the academy that that and, and that we actually can change if we put in the energy to organize and fight for them. But I think that it can often be very hard to get people to actually do that. And I mean, you know, I, I think that um I think that both of you have probably made this point. I mean, I think is you know, sometimes you can see that a lot of the Big name academics on Twitter, like they rarely treat about tweet about labor politics or call attention to those kinds of issues in the academy. And and I think that that is that is really unfortunate because those are things that we that the public needs to know about um, and that the public, which, you know, pays and taxes and subsidizes um universities and, and and goes to public universities need to know about and need to hear about and need to also join with us in the academy um to make demands on on administrators and on state legislatures for better working and learning conditions for everybody. And so I would my my hope would be that if if the chair does anything, it like maybe moves people in that direction. But I'm not I'm not sure if that's actually happening. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm really glad that that you brought that up about, right, the the inability of kind of big names on, on Twitter. And I know like some people don't like Twitter and, you know, some people are like, oh, what's the point of having a big profile or whatever. But like, I think we can take it seriously. The fact that people who have like tens of thousands of followers, right, that people do listen to what they say and they do take at least some of what they say really seriously. And the silence from some of these people is just it, it's so frustrating. And like in some of our DMs, we talk about when it comes to kind of like sports stuff and, you know, the, the the inability to kind of critique certain things. But I think especially the like anti-labor politics that are represented by their lack of engagement of it is so effing frustrating. And it's, and I don't know how many times I've gotten, and, and I think what, what I've so appreciated about your work, Ashish, is that like, I think you are one of the most outspoken faculty on the tenure track. Um, in terms of the, the the really honest and necessary critiques that you make and even amongst center track faculty, that's really, really rare. And that's something that like I've been trying to speak up more about is that, yes, I'm a tenure track person, but hey, like, I mean, my school supports me and I I actually don't necessarily think that my job is in danger, but also like there's at least sort of like a paper trail, right? That like, if something happens, you can kind of connect some dots and put some things together. And then we've also seen like faculty, community colleges be let go because of this super, super far right wing, politics of the school and then you know and in, in, in contrast to faculty that being very outspoken so I don't think being silent I personally don't think being silent is the way to go and obviously it depends on people's positionality and kind of how many people they're taking care of and people have personal circumstances that I know nothing about and I understand why some people feel more vulnerable and marginalized and maybe don't feel comfortable doing that. that's fine but I still get kind of people in my DMs especially white women telling me kind of like suggesting like oh you know like you should really focus on this or like maybe this isn't the time to do it and I'm kind of just like stop you know like I I understand that maybe this is perceived as being like protective but like stop you know like I, I do kind of know what I'm doing and there's a paper trail and like I'm not gonna wait till I'm tenured like I think the whole like wait until your tenure thing that has not borne out
2: yeah, I really think yeah. it has not borne it. I mean, I would also say that I, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I don't, I, like, it, it, if there are any tenure track people who are, who are worried about this, I mean, I think, you know, this is like, this is sort of like our, our you know, the, 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 if, if we don't speak out now, um, I mean, tenure is already essentially a a, a thing that is not part of, I mean, increasingly just not part of academic culture as the vast majority of, of workers are contingent and are not, um, and, and the vast majority of, te, you know, tenured or tenure track positions are disappearing and being converted into contingent um, positions, you know, and, and, you know, to the point that if, if people, you know, who, you know who, who, who are, say, on the tenure track don't speak up now. Um, they may not, you know, the, the kinds of the relative privilege that they enjoy within the academy may not last for very long. You know, I mean, folks, folks, a lot of people don't realize, I mean, I think even among academics, a lot of people don't realize that, that tenure is not a, um, is not a, you know, people like, oh, you have the job for life and you can do whatever you want. Well, you know, one of the things about that is that, Uh, within all sort of ten university um, uh, uh, governance structures, um, there is always the possibility that tenure can be um, uh, uh, lost in the event of uh, financial um, contingency. Um, And I believe, and I was just going to look it up, um, and and I don't have it uh, uh, at the top of my finger, that... This has actually happened at um, uh, uh, a couple of, um, of 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 universities um, uh, so far. Um,
1: I, I hate to interject, but I, I was going to offer one example: is Canisius College in outside of outside of Buffalo, and I know their their Russian Soviet historian had tenure was like several years into being tenure and due to horrible financial mismanagement and that's the issue right is that declaring financial exigency as a reason and 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 saying tenure is going to protect me but like if you don't push back against financial mismanagement then like it's going to they're going to do what they're going to remove your tenure and so I have a colleague who essentially their um their their administration told departments you need to decide amongst yourselves how many, like, the, you need to, you need to, you need, like, we need two, we need two less people in your department. So you need to decide amongst yourselves who those two people are, which is, like, horrific. Um. And he, and he was 10, you know, he was 10 and he was, because he was one of the youngest faculty, that's the other thing, is departments that are older that maybe haven't hired people in a while. So then if you're, if you're looking at the the people that have been there the shortest amount of time, those people have to be tenured. Tenure doesn't matter anymore.
2: Absolutely, and, and I, I, I found the, or how it's in, it was actually a Wall Street Journal article um, from December, 2020 hit by COVID-19 colleges do the unthinkable and cut tenure. Because of their drops in revenue, they, you know, college administrators, um, uh, so the, 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 um, the story focuses on um, uh, a, a college called, I think it's pronounced Midale College in um, in Buffalo, New York, where during the um, coronavirus, um, the campus shut down and revenue plummeted 15%. And the president um, of the university, with the approval of the board of trustees, suspended the faculty handbook by invoking a, quote, active God clause embedded in it. He laid off several professors, um, uh, cut the Homeland Security and Health Information Management programs, rescinded the lifelong job security of tenure and rewrote the faculty handbook, rules that had governed the school for decades. So it's possible, and, and academics really need to, especially tenured academics, really need to understand that. Um, it, 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 it is happening and it, it, it will continue to happen unless we get organized.
0: Yeah, and, and just one more piece I wanna to add to this, uh, maybe as a sort of a final note, we also have to be thinking about the fact that just as and we talk about this all the time just as the actual existing people who work in athletic departments are complicit in the exploitation of the campus athletic workers who are not compensated right that they are that the compensation of those who are employed by athletic departments especially of course the coaches at the top of the hierarchies and so forth and the and the athletic directors they are the primary beneficiaries of that exploitation well, we're not immune to that, right, on the academic side as well. And especially when it comes to grad school, actually, in some ways, as, because when it comes to grad school, we're talking about a situation in which people are being invited to enter into um, a, a kind of professional training for positions that don't really exist anymore. And along the way, oh, by the way, we get to take your labor, right? For, the, for a minimal wage, we get to take your labor and use it to help the university run and there's a way in which i'm sorry to say this like graduate supervision even has become therefore complicit in something that is deeply problematic and there's also a way in which the alt ac industry right which has grafted itself on is also complicit in the fact that it's like trying it's like it's it's like i'm i'm trying very hard not to use a word that i'm going to try to avoid it starts with g and ends with t and there's an r in there as well um I guess what I'm trying to say is because I'm trying to connect this to actually a really um, a, a less polemical and more sort of insightful argument that you have made about the fact that grad school to higher ed, that pipeline is not a viable path to implement leftist social change to combat neoliberalism, right? That that's not the way to go. And I kind of just feel like these things are all sort of playing out together.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in, in, in the context, especially I think of graduate school. Now, I mean, it, 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 you know, it is, and, and this gets, to, like, it is the structural problem, like graduate, like, understandably, right, you know, like, graduate students are so worried, it's like, from the minute they step into, onto campus, right, about, will I get a job? Will I get a job? Will I get a job? And the, the entire culture of, like, departments and the university is, like, okay, there's like, you're not, there are no jobs and you have to like work so hard and like really focus on your, um, your, uh, you know, your work and your research in, in, in order to, um, in order to get a job. And so like, that is the point of being here. And, you know, by the way, we're only going to give you like five years of really not very good funding to do it. And so It kind of creates from the very moment that people I think step on campus this like this sort of situation of emergency and of panic. um, which redirects I think a lot of energy toward the kind of the individualistic, I need to survive, you know, the academic rat race And, and away from kind of the solidaristic, no, like we need to all work together to change the, these these conditions, um, because the, the 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 fundamental pursuit, you know, of, of knowledge um, and teaching, is a good one, but the conditions under which we're doing them, um, and the structures that we're doing them, are are really bad. And, you know, I I think that my hope is that more and more, you know, graduate workers, and and I think you know, really, especially tenured faculty. Or tenure faculty can really look to graduate workers and see that this struggle is is actually. I mean, it's it's really about them because their own working conditions are really contingent upon organizing. And you know, as as we've seen with universities that have cut, um, you know, tenure positions, and I was also going to bring up the fact that a lot a number of universities. Um, Including some very very wealthy ones, such as Johns Hopkins, um, uh, suspended uh, retirement contributions to um, you know to to uh, to their um, to their faculty, which is which is a, a benefit that often only um, tenured faculty enjoy having you know, the university um, contribute to your retirement, and those were those were suspended by you know universities like Johns Hopkins, which has a gigantic endowment.
0: During and the... another, another one called Duke University. Yes,
2: exactly, Duke, exactly, right. And so, you know, my hope would be that this could be a wake-up call to tenured faculty, which is like, you, you know, you, maybe it's a little bit hard, it may be a little bit harder to fire you, but universities are, are, are you know, run by financial executives and corporate lawyers uh, can also make your life miserable, and don't think they won't if it ultimately helps their bottom line. And that's why you need to get organized and you know be on the front lines with your grad worker and your um, contingent colleagues fighting back and and using your relative privilege and power within the within the academy. To, to 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 help change things and to fix things because ultimately if you don't uh, you know this 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 ship is really going to sink and you're going down with it
1: absolutely well that is a uh not an uplifting but a really you know, important that's a point hell of a I note mentioned. to end on my god yeah. <laughs> I, know. I know but God Ashish thank you so so much for joining us today this was such a again not an uplifting conversation but such a necessary one and I think and I think Nathan and I are just really fired up about these issues as you are too and again so so sorry that Derek couldn't have joined us because he you know he's been doing this kind of stuff for a long time and really would would have loved to contribute so Derek you're here in spirit but Ashish thank you so so much and um, yeah, thank you. We really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, guys. Um, it's such a, it was it's such an honor to be on um, to be on the show. You guys have just an absolutely amazing um, uh, podcast, and, and you 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 do such amazing and important work um, as um, you know as public intellectuals and as advocates for um, a, a radical progressive um, democratic vision for higher education. And, um, I'm so honored, um, to have been a guest and, and so grateful for, for, for the work that, that you all do.
0: That means a lot.
1: Yeah. Likewise.